I come from just the other town from nowhere. <laughs> Dang. To this big time, lonesome town. A little Johnny Cash for you, Bob. We got <laughs> ice and snow there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get that bass. Uh, yeah. As as per usual, you got to turn up the bass on this podcast, if you know what I mean. <laughs> hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dave. Thanks for joining Bob and I for our podcast, Thriving in Dystopia. And even though we always try and be professionals, sometimes we swear. So just know that going in. Well, hey, Bob, got your coffee with you? Sure do. Nice. You got your Yeti blue microphone with you? It's barely holding up, but hopefully it survives this episode. Good. Neighbor's dogs barking in the background? Uh, Of course. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't have much introduction today. Um, Do you have anything for those lovely listeners out there? Maybe you could just uh, describe what Colorado feels like right now, middle of the summer. Um, Yeah. What what is the weather outside and the vibe for Colorado right now. Yeah. Well, the vibe is mid July as per usual. Those late afternoon thunderstorms start to dry up. So in June, you still get a little bit of rain. And then the second July hits, it's just like drought season. And my front yard is the brownest yard on the block. I live in kind of a little bit of a lush neighborhood that where people are always watering. I've been digging up my backyard. Every week I dig up a new section to plant buckwheat and oats and barley. Uh, you know, classic chicken food for my chickens. Yeah, so I've been using all my water to water that. And a little bit sweaty. It's like been in the 90s and a little bit sticky. But, you know, Colorado's so dry, it's not not that sticky. It's not like Vermont sticky. For all those Vermont listeners out there, they know stick, you know? <laughs> they probably do. Yeah. yeah. It's a far cry from seaside. We, we have June gloom. It's intense. Every morning, the fog is here until at least n- noon. And then we get a little bit of sun, but some intense cold wind from the the bay so it's it's been a summer like no other for me just so cold Mm. um yeah you know even santa cruz was quite a bit warmer than this wow that's a shame Mm -hmm. i feel like santa cruz was such a tease you know you live right next to this beautiful ocean and you have to be so like foolhardy to jump in the in, in the waves it's just like by the time you make it to the beach, all you want to do is put on a light sweater and sit in the sand and kind of like look out as to like, why does anyone ever jump in the ocean? It's just Yeah, like, that's, that's double in seaside. Double is challenging. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm excited about this episode and Me too. I don't want to run too long. So I say, why don't we uh, tell the listeners a little bit about what we're going to be doing today, Bob? Let's do it, Dave. Yeah, we have our, our good friend will join us for the show, and he is an author. And so we asked him to read one of his pieces for us. And this is a really interesting piece. So his name is Michael Bishop, and he's a MFA candidate at the University of Idaho. 
he hails from Oahu, Hawaii, and his writing is informed by studies in psychology and philosophy and a career in environmental work and emergency rescue. His writing often explores the reciprocal determinism between nature and humanity. And his work has appeared in The Normal School, About Place Journal, Points in Case, and the Honolulu Civil Beat. He has been awarded the 2021 Fulbright Grant for Creative Writing in New Zealand. Oh. And he's, he's an avid explorer of both wilderness and consciousness alike. So, and beyond that, he is a dear friend of both yours and mine. He and I met back in fifth grade when he moved to Boulder, Colorado, and we got to know each other on the the football field at recess. Yeah, Mike's just a just a wonderful guy, deep thinker, has an adventurous spirit that has always been such a good influence on me. We've been through we've been through it all together. So it's it's great to have him on the show. Oh, that's really sweet. Yeah. And I don't think I saw it on the resume, but didn't he work for Blackjack Pizza for a year or two? <laughs> I think that was Abos, Dave. Abos. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry. Yeah. And I believe uh, he was a bartender with me uh, at Hibachi oh, right. Bar and Grill back there in, uh, what was that, 2008? That was a good year. You know what? Uh, I'm just messing around. I like to, Mike is like one of our longest friends. We yeah. I've always considered your friends to be my friends. So I feel like I've known Mike since I was like a baby, basically. And it's awesome to have him here. So today on the podcast, Mike is going to read a short story that he wrote a few years ago and a quick content warning that there are some intense scenes and they have to do a surgery. So if you want to skip ahead, if you're not feeling up for listening to that, you can skip ahead 16 minutes and you will get to the discussion about the story. And the discussion has a lot of great points that will be brought up and you can, I'm sure you'll still get a lot out of that. So without further ado, here is Mike Bishop. This is Primum Non Nocere, First, Do No Harm, by yours truly, Michael Bishop, and this is available courtesy of The Normal School. Consider for a moment the end of your life. Consider that I used to be like you, and that I rarely considered such things. I used to be insulated from the world of brain death and organ transplantation. About the only contact I'd had with these macabre ideas was when I checked the organ donor box on my driver's license application. Then, years ago, an avant-garde psychology professor assigned me to write my own eulogy and living will. I remember thinking then that the idea of having my organs removed, even after death, was unsettling. Questions of whether I wanted to be resuscitated, kept alive by a ventilator, and other such end-of-life choices were no less alarming. But it was not until a recent chance encounter, an hour-long car ride with a pair of transplant surgeons, that I decided to undertake a serious investigation of these things, decided to reconsider them. Months of obsession left me scouring medical journals, committee reports, news stories, and bioethics texts late into the night. My curiosity had beckoned me to peek behind the final curtain, to see that death itself is more than a bit cryptic in this age of technological and medical wonders. 
consider first what it means to be alive, to be a metabolizing, replicating, adapting collection of cells, what it means to be you, to be a thinking, feeling, self-aware fragment of consciousness. Some combination of these attributes is what biologists, philosophers, neuroscientists, theologians, and lawyers identify as a human life. This notion of life, and ergo death, is rife with value judgments, assertions, and precious few facts. Further complicating the issue are the unfortunate states of being suspended between life and death, shaded in a multitude of grays, blurring, diffusing, and rendering impossible any clear threshold between the two. You've likely made at least one decision, in at least partial ignorance, about how your final moments might look. A decision that might result in untold horrors. A decision that might shock you. A decision that deserves more attention than you've likely paid it. Perhaps you checked a box with a click, a quick flick of your wrist, slicing open an entire hidden world of not-quite-dead cadavers and organ procurement organizations, shrouded in billions of reasons for opacity. Consider what will unfold if you experience one of the deaths that meet the criteria for organ recovery, the previous nomenclature of harvesting having fallen out of favor. You have suffered a stroke, perhaps, or a catastrophic head injury in an automobile accident. You are comatose. The use of an electroencephalogram to measure brain activity is recommended, but not required for diagnostic purposes. You do not receive an EEG. Your pupils have ceased to contract in response to light. Ice water dripped into your ears no longer elicits the reflex by which your brainstem and eyes seek to correct for vestibular disturbances. Your ventilator is disconnected to verify that you no longer spontaneously breathe on your own. Reconnected, it perpetuates your existence in limbo. You pass, or fail, these perfunctory tests on two separate occasions with different physicians. You slip into undeath. You meet the medico-legal definition of brain death and have become what is known as a beating heart cadaver. BHC. You and your brain are declared dead, but your organs are kept alive and oxygenated by mechanical ventilation and your still beating heart. Brain death is a fiction. It is an erroneous assertion born out of the urgency to supply patients in much better straits than the BHC in your imagined predicament with viable organs that might extend their lives. This fiction was written swiftly in 1968, the year following the first successful transplant of a human heart, amid growing demand for organs, by the ad hoc committee of the Harvard Medical School to examine the definition of brain death. The ad hoc committee report was an exercise in semantics designed to circumvent the dead donor rule a stringent ethical guideline that stipulates that the removal of organs must never be the cause of a donor's death. They must already be dead. Within 13 years, this idea of whole brain death 
as determined by reflex and apnea tests, became the law of the land across the United States and has persisted into present day. Prior to diagnosing your brain death, the activity of many of the parts of your brain to which neuroscientists ascribe the activity of generating the consciousness that makes you, you, is not measured, cannot be measured. Consider that no tests or machines can conclusively determine that you no longer feel pain despite being brain dead, only that you no longer react to it. Consider that prior to ending up as a BHC, you, like 52% of Americans, registered with the brief stroke of a pen to become an organ donor, compliments of your local Department of Motor Vehicles. You have given permission for a team of surgeons in service of an organ procurement organization, OPO, to recover your heart, lungs, liver, pancreas, kidneys, and intestines. Your organs are worth more than $130,000 to the OPO. Consider that the published literature on the subject shows a negative correlation between organ donation registration rates and years of experience within the medical field. The OPO was contacted before your first brain death diagnostic exam. Its wheels, part of a multi-billion dollar machine, spinning into action at the first hint from hospital staff of your loss of neurological reflexes, evidence that you might soon become a suitable organ donor. Thus begins the carefully orchestrated sales pitch, complete with communication protocols detailing the precise language and images to share with your family at each stage of the procurement process. Nationally, OPOs have a 42% donor conversion rate. Consider what the moments following your diagnosis of brain death will look like for your family. Before recovering your organs, the OPO must obtain permission from your next of kin, despite the fact that you've registered as a donor with the DMV. Even if you've explicitly declined to register as an organ donor, the OPO will still ask your family for permission to recover your organs. There is no database of non-donors. Regardless of whether they know your wishes, your relatives must partake in this decision. Imagine that they give consent, honoring the wishes of your hypothetical DMV donor registration. Remember that no test has been done, nor can be done, to determine that your whole brain is permanently and irreversibly damaged beyond the point of making you, you, but that you have been declared nevertheless to be permanently and irreversibly brain dead. Consider the case of Jahi McMath, the 13-year-old Oakland girl who was declared brain dead due to hemorrhagic complications following a surgery to correct her sleep apnea. Her family believed her to still be alive since her body was regulating its own temperature and repairing her surgical wounds, her heart was still beating, her organs were still functioning. In short, they adhered to a different definition of death than the whole brain death espoused by the ad hoc committee, a version of which is codified in California law. A legal battle ensued when the hospital tried to remove the ventilator 
that they felt was being wasted at considerable expense on what they viewed to be nothing more than a BHC. Hospital administrators went as far as referring to the girl as a corpse. Amid the embarrassing scrutiny of national media attention, the hospital reached a settlement with the family who relocated Jahi to New Jersey, where religious exemptions to the state's medical legal definition of brain death are allowed, and continued to care for her for more than four and a half years. Dozens of videos showed evidence of her moving specific fingers or kicking her feet in response to verbal commands. In addition, she menstruated for the first time while brain dead indicating that her hypothalamus and pituitary gland were functioning and that not all of her brain had been permanently and irreversibly damaged. A neurologist filed a legal motion attesting as such, as much, stating that she was a severely disabled girl, but a living one. The legal arguments have not yet been settled, but in this case, and in others like it, credible doctors have identified instances where permanent and irreversible brain death has been found to be neither permanent nor irreversible. Consider that neuroplasticity allows the brain to redistribute to new areas tasks formerly performed by damaged or destroyed regions of the brain. Consider Frankiellen da Silva Zampoli Padilla, a pregnant woman who was declared brain dead after suffering a stroke. She gestated her unborn twins for the next 123 days before they were delivered, premature but healthy, via emergency cesarean upon her cardiac arrest. Or Colleen Burns, an addict who was declared brain dead in a New York hospital following an overdose, who was on the operating table about to have her organs recovered for donation. She opened her eyes. She was discharged from the hospital two weeks later. Doctors make mistakes. Consider that both auditory and visual cortices have, been, have shown EEG activity in brain dead patients. You might still hear what's happening around you. You might still feel pain no one can tell. Consider how your final moments might unfold. Several teams of surgeons and nurses surround you in a crowded operating room. One team will extract your liver, your pancreas, then your kidneys, your intestines. Perhaps your hands or even your face will be recovered as well. Then within 24 hours, your corneas, skin, tendons, veins, and bones will all be recovered by a separate for-profit tissue procurement organization. But first, the cardiac team will recover your heart and lungs. They demand the most urgency. They have the shortest shelf life. Consider that you're lying on the operating table. An impossibly keen scalpel is drawn by a steady hand with near robotic precision. From the bottom of your larynx down to your pubic bone, silently unzipping the flesh of your chest, leaving a spreading crimson void in its wake. Do you feel pain? 
You have not been anesthetized, since doing so could have reduced the viability of your organs. Seconds later, you have a dim awareness of the high-pitched whir of a bone saw buzzing to life. Do you feel terror? Sturdy hands guide the oscillating jigsaw down the length of your sternum. An immense pressure tearing and vibrating through your chest until your breastbone splits apart with an audible crack. A sternal retractor ratchets open your rib cage with a peeling, sucking sound, bathing your still-beating heart in artificial light, exposing it to the team of eager harvesters. Can you feel the cold air sinking inside of you? A clamp seals your aorta. Your heart has fed you for the last time. Razor-sharp razor scissors begin the dissection, severing left pulmonary veins, aorta, pulmonary arteries, pericardium, right pulmonary veins, vena cava. You are heartless. You are dead by any definition. Someday, your family might give consent under duress from an organization with clear financial incentives, and perhaps guided by an ill-considered decision you made while applying for a driver's license, for your still-beating heart to be cut out of your chest. No one will ever know for certain if you feel any pain or fear, as everyone involved is shielded from the unknown and unknowable realities of your final experience by the ad hoc fiction of brain death. Consider again, for a moment, the end of your life. Hey Mike, thanks so much for that reading listening to it again and gave me chills glad to hear it yeah you know before we get too much into the interview i just want to say that i feel like this what good writing does or sort of really any good media it kind of makes you think right and i feel like the critical thinking that i i did after just listening to this 18 minute long short story it just like it just makes your brain start moving like crazy and i feel like that is like such a big takeaway to to see the world in a new way and i really appreciate that about this story so i just wanted to thank you for that because i feel like critical thinking is so important and that's like really hard to do in under 10,000 words or however long this story is yeah thanks a lot dave i mean that really means a lot to me and I think that my artistic vision is at least somewhat grounded in terrain familiar to maybe George Orwell. Um, he, he once said that anything that he wrote without some type of political purpose behind it just turned out to be garbage. And, you know, I don't identify explicitly as a political artist, but um, I, I do think it's important for artists to be kind of the eyes and ears of an era 
and to bear witness to what it feels like to live through a certain moment in time. Mm. So, um, yeah, this piece was actually born out of your wedding, Dave. Uh, no. the, the car ride that I mentioned in the introduction to this piece was uh, the ride that I shared on the way back to the Albany airport from your wedding. Oh, sweet. Oh, yeah. With uh, Rob and Alicia, right? Yeah, yeah. My, and, our uh, doctor friends. Yeah, I, I'm very squeamish about all of this. Um, anything having to do with intense medical stuff or having to deal with my own heart or uh, even like touching my sternum makes me feel uneasy. So it was a huge leap for me to, to broach this subject in the, in the car, but I felt like when am I ever going to have another chance to talk to a couple of surgeons? And yeah, that just sort of started unraveling this really kind of terrifying world of organ donation. I think we can ask Mike a number of different questions. I think the piece is, you know, multi-layered. So I'll just start asking Mike a question around like what he's doing with the piece, like ha the that idea of bearing witness. And one thing that struck me about it is that there's a critique or at least I feel like there's a critique of the um, the institutions that have set this up. And um, it's actually a number of different institutions that are working together. The, the OPO, um, Organ Procurement Organization. Is that what that stands for, Mike? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then like the DMV and other and like hospitals. So I'm... I just wanted to ask you if that is part of your work here or your purpose here in like critiquing institutions and how they operate. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to me, when I discovered that the entire notion of brain death was created by an ad hoc committee, you know, there was something just so dystopian in that uh, mm -hmm. a group of people getting together to solve a problem relating to the newly performed procedure of a heart transplant. Uh, and it was almost a pragmatic decision. And just the, the ripples from that initial decision have resulted in this really kind of predatory and capitalistic structure that, I mean, it, it capitalizes our bodies. Um, so to me, it felt very kind of, the whole thing feels sort of dystopian. And, uh, you know, you can't escape from capitalism, even in death. So I, I wanted to bear witness to that, but I, I guess I should take a moment to be explicit here and say that I am not anti-organ donation in the slightest. Yeah. Um, and when you, when you die, your organs can save up to eight people's lives. Dang. But uh, what I am against is sort of the illusion that you will feel nothing. Uh, there's no chance that you will feel nothing. Um, and like all of this, the way that this fiction was created and kind of evolved and then sort of incorporated organ, all these other organizations, hospitals, OPOs. Um, yeah, to me, that was where it sort of got out of control and people lost sight of what actual, what does it mean to be a human being? What is consciousness? What is awareness? Um, so I'm not against organ donation, but I think people need informed consent. You know, flicking that box on your driver's license 
could have you experienced the most horrific thing imaginable, um, yeah, which is what yeah. I tried to do to, at the end of this essay was really uh, subject the reader to that experience of having their organs removed. Yeah. And I think you did a good job with that too. I feel like that moment is like, it's, that's like the chilling moment of the whole story. Right. And that's like this epic conclusion where, you know, you as a reader, like you said, you die, you know, and you kind of like have that imagined experience. Um, and I feel like it's, it's a powerful moment for sure. And I do think that like, it is something that I've never thought about even, and I agree, like I am going to continue to be an organ donor, I think, but I think it's, it, it, what this story does is it makes me like kind of think about what that means. What does, and it makes you confront death, which is like the hardest thing to do as an author, I'm sure. But it's also like, as a reader, I don't really want to confront death. I want to read about like superheroes and stuff. Well, but. I think I think in a way, yeah. after reading this and having your eyes open to the possibility of this experience, um, continuing to be an organ donor is at least like a small kind superhero act. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. I think anyone, I mean, that idea of life saving, that is what organ donation is, right? And it does save lives. And I do think that like we are all pro life saving and pro giving and pro but it's like such a it's a thing that we shouldn't just be expected to do i love that that whole imagery of just like checking a box on a dmv which is just like where does that how does that even correlate you know what i mean where is the correlation there exactly yeah there's some interesting stuff about whether opting in or opting out is the way that the choice is presented i think in in many scandinavian countries for instance you have to opt out so you have to check the box if you do not want to be a donor. Uh, and that actually results in significantly higher donor rates. So the way that we have it set up mm. results in, in lower rates of organ donation. Oh, that's so interesting. Even though the institutions would like uh, it to be higher. But is that just a residue of that committee? And they designed it that way. And now it's hard to reverse that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that, maybe it just has something to do with cultural differences between America and Europe. We need to have our, the choice made as an individual rather than sort of having it forced onto us. I'm not entirely sure about that. I wanted to mention that Dave's getting to a point or at an idea that I think shows the ways in which this is a political piece and that is that idea that Dave mentioned, like he had never thought of this and I, and that's true for me too. And that, you know, when artists open our eyes to the things that we take for granted, the things that are called the common sense, that is a powerful, like political move on the, the artist's uh, work. So I, I, I was wondering if that was also a part of your purpose. Yeah, absolutely. And in a, in a very significant way, this is a piece about um, disability. Because when we look at the case of Jahi McMath, the girl from Oakland, her neuroscientist 
stated that she was a severely disabled girl, but a living one. And that to me is a, a key element here. Um, with advances in neuroscience and medicine and the ability to recover from severe brain injuries and just these uh, sort of liminal states of consciousness, disorders of consciousness, I guess is what these, these states are called. Um, yeah, to just say, to give up, to pull the plug, to say, no, this is permanent and irreversible. We're going to take your organs. Uh, it's just, it totally obviates consent to me. People don't know what they're being asked to do or what they're signing up to do when they check that box. And there was some really, really alarming research that came out just after I published this. So it'll make it into a future version of this. But there is a study that they did on patients who were suffering from disorders of consciousness. And they wanted to measure whether or not they could feel anything or hear anything. To make a long story short, they found that almost 20% of the people that were so-called brain dead were able to have awareness of what was going on around them. So this scenario here is not just like an imaginative horror story. It's something that, you know, you might have a 20% 20% of people who donate their organs might be aware of what's happening to them. So yeah, I, I felt like, you know, once I started to uncover all of this stuff, I, I couldn't sit on it. You know, I want to start conversations about what the medical industry is is doing almost almost absent-mindedly yeah like we talked about that initial decision to determine what brain death is how does that get partnered up with the dmv and how does that result in all these thousands of people sort of unknowingly undergoing this extremely invasive and terrifying and maybe painful procedure and that's the very last experience that they have in their life I guess that's part of the reason I wanted to read this piece or to have you read this piece is because I feel like the imagery that it creates is that the imagery of torture and the imagery of dystopian like worlds where it's just like, I just feel like it feels like a, a scene out of clockwork orange almost. I can just like see that scene where you're being forced to watch TV or you're being like strapped down and like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I just feel like that imagery is like all tied into this. And it's that those are the images of a world that we, we don't, I guess we're just trying to fight for a world that has less pain. That's like one of the things I'm trying to do but it's like such a hard balance because like, if you can save a life, like what kind of a pain are you, can you endure? You know, I don't know. I don't know if I'm quite making a point, but I just feel like it's definitely bringing out a lot of feelings in me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's just a massive gray area. Um, many, many shades of gray as well. It's not, that organ donation as a thing is outright horrific or that it's going to result in torture, but it's possible. And um, there are doctors and bioethicists that are grappling with this and they're trying to create a new protocol for registering people for organ donation 
or even for you know asking people if they want to be anesthetized because even doing something like that would by and large, that would completely prevent any awareness of this final experience but of course it, there's a it's alluded to in the essay that um, anesthesia can reduce the viability of your donated organs so again there's sort of this maximizing utility and maximizing profit even mike how do you think of that perspective the the ways that i guess the the capitalist aspect of it that drives a big part of it how do you think about like the this situation in the current context more broadly so of course the situation is still very much happening with organ procurement but what other institutions alarm you in the in this similar way where they're operating in this way driven a lot by profit and seemingly they're not no one's raising questions if there's any others that in the dystopian landscape that come up for you well the the ones that are where people are not raising questions might be a little harder to come up with but i'm very glad to see that the bright lights have finally hit the meatpacking industry because again this deals with the nature of consciousness and sentience and the ability to feel pain um, or the ability to have agency and our culture systematically denies all of that to non-human life that just the immense suffering of industrial animal agriculture is something that bothers me a great deal but now that it's spilled over thanks to COVID, uh, meatpacking plants are sort of the epicenter of these COVID outbreaks in many places throughout the United States. When the president used the Defense Production Act to declare meat as critical infrastructure in order to force these workers back into meat processing plants, and oftentimes we're talking about workers who are immigrants and people of color and you know, making them into essential workers to provide stakes for Wall Street investors or real estate developers. Uh, to me, that's thoroughly dystopian. But I guess to, to think about one that maybe isn't or that's just starting to kind of get some attention put on it. Uh, I'm a graduate student and a, a lecturer at a university. And, you know, you are you're teaching as well, Bob. And here we are coming up on August and all of the teachers. Dave, are you teaching as well? Are you going to be in a classroom this fall? Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't know exactly what's happening. It's kind of up in the air, but like there, it's looking like um, we'll be like hybrid models. So like half in the classroom, half online with the kids. Yeah, I think that's an example of where... Um, we're all sort of being coerced to pretend like we can deliver an experience close to normal. Um, and yeah, to me that, that feels very dystopian to have a university trying to maximize its tuition intake by convincing the undergraduate students that they'll be able to have a semi-normal campus experience um, yeah, so to me, that feels very similar to the way that 
this whole medico legal organ donation thing kind of gets swept up in all of these cultural systems. Yeah. I mean, it's all putting capital on the body, right? Like we, we don't have a, like in the meatpacking industry, the, the workers don't have a choice because they need money. So they don't have a choice to stay home. Like us as teachers, we need our jobs, you know, like we can't, I feel like I can't say like, uh, yeah, I don't feel like that's safe, especially, you know, because I'm not high risk. I feel like I got to go in and I, I got to teach and I got to put my body on the line a little bit. And yeah, I think it, that idea, you know, the human body is worth, I think you said $130,000, but I do want to make mention of the fact that I, I did swallow a quarter when I was a kid. So add 25 cents to my body, if, if you don't mind. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just like, it's all tied together of like what we have to do, like these cap, what the capitalist structure will make us do no matter what. And I feel like maybe that's part of why the U.S. is doing so bad because we're so so tied into capitalism and why the U S can't solve COVID whatsoever. You know, I'm, I've been trying to figure that all out all, all day and all weekend. I've been like struggling to like really understand why. And I, I'm sure there's much smarter people to answer this, maybe Mike or Bob, but yeah. Anyways. Well, like one of the things that you said about meatpacking workers, not having a choice, I think it's super important to think about why they don't have a choice. And that's because, uh, the, the government, you know, they, we didn't provide adequate funding or protection for these people to either a stay home or to drastically like reduce the workforce that's exposed to close quarters conditions and give them the appropriate PPE. So almost all of these nightmare scenarios, especially higher ed, um, are scenarios where people are facing these horrific decisions because the government is not supporting them. Like the university that I'm at has suffered uh, running budget cuts the last couple of years and has already tacked on another massive budget cut. And there's no federal relief in sight. So they are forced to do whatever they can to, to make their budget work. Um, and that's kind of what I think is fueling all of these situations where people are forced to put their lives on the line to teach a creative writing class, for instance. And don't get me wrong, I love writing. <laughs> but yeah. What you all are describing is one way to look at it is the collapse of the American empire. And, you know, the American empire is very connected to capitalism and it's also extremely connected to militarism. Both of those things have, you know, at least for the last 40 years, been chiseling away at the public infrastructure that, you know, we're all a part of in terms of schools and then also healthcare and, and all those other things. And I guess I'm that question that you were asking, Dave, like, why is it so bad here? That comes to mind for me and also. Uh, I'll have to say that I've been watching National Geographic, so I've <laughs> that they've like chronicled the rise of the Inca, the Maya, and the Egyptian empires. So I think that's why that's on my mind right now. And for me, that's like not a bad thing. 
or not um, a monolithically bad thing that the empire is falling apart because it the cracks in those cracks you know resistance and um, what Mike was saying like that there's now more light shined on the exploitation and oppression like in the meatpacking or at the universities like and of course like with the George Floyd the protests and uprising after his murder you know it's it's like a really intense landscape but there are possibilities I think that it it's sometimes hard to see that because it's so hard day-to-day life is really hard but I do think there's more possibilities for socially just and environmentally just change than there was you know, a couple years ago. Um, and at the same time, people are so tired. I'm not sure that like it feels that way or, or we'll actually see that change. But, um, I do think that's what the landscape looks like. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm hopeful that, I mean, even if people are very exhausted and fatigued and, uh, just the relentless onslaught of things that we need to resist, like the deployment of you know, Gestapo forces in Portland right now. Um, I, I don't know. I hope that we witness at bare minimum a massive blowback at the ballot box in November. It, it's sort of, it's really frustrating to imagine like what would be happening right now if we actually had competent leadership and uh in what ways could we transform society? Would we finally be ready to transform society towards something more just in terms of healthcare and education and uh, economic opportunity? If we had someone leading our country that actually cared about opportunities for working class or just human rights. Uh, so I guess I'm hopeful that the current leadership, which is just denying and throwing gasoline on the fire of this pandemic is I really, really, really hope that they're strongly repudiated in November. But I guess we have to do more than hope, right? Oh, well, yeah. I, I mean, hope part of it, right? Hope, hope comes from actions. You're right. So day to day things like, um, I mean, actions come in all forms they come from, you know, going to an event, but they also come from writing a great piece like you have, Mike, and, you know, just reaching out and building community and trust. Like we've talked about on this show, that idea is a joyful militancy. Yeah, yeah definitely. And I think that that's sort of why I feel that that similar impulse that George Orwell talked about, where, um, I don't know, I'm someone who's been politically active and has been protesting injustices and volunteering uh, for a long time. And so I think that that political urgency certainly informs my art. And as a nonfiction writer, I, I really enjoy playing with the form. I think creative nonfiction is sort of this, it's a relatively new phenomenon. But um, as you can see, when I when I delve into these uh, imaginative language or the imperative tone to ask, to demand the reader to imagine themselves in a situation. Yeah. Like you mentioned a little bit, Dave, killing the reader in nonfiction is uh, pretty unusual. I, I don't know that there's a lot of pieces out there that do that. So using this 
this form of art really kind of allows my capacious imagination to to grapple with a lot of the things that are happening in the world and kind of the collapse of this empire and yeah it's exhausting and emotionally draining to try to bear witness to that but i think it would be tragic not to or in orwell's terms it would be garbage not to right <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh you know i'm writing some other stuff about uh surfing and uh even that is is political it's tied to a lot of uh things that people don't necessarily think about especially surfers so yeah i think that uh if i can turn my surf memoir into a bit of witness literature then uh, then i'll be doing okay yeah i like that last week we did an episode on grief i don't know if you caught it mike but um yeah i feel like one of the things that came up was finding meaning in um in loss and with grief and with death and i feel like that's what that's that's what writing does right you're trying to help people find meaning you're not necessarily trying to give people the answer because i don't think that that's necessarily the work of a writer i mean it can be if you're eckard tolle or something like that but like <laughs> i feel like i feel like yeah you're just trying to like give people a little bit of meaning and broaden their critical consciousness and i like that a lot yeah i think uh with creative nonfiction or literary nonfiction or something of a more artistic bent. Um, my aim, like you said, is just to maybe crack things open and reveal them in a new light. Um, there is no explicit argument in this piece, for instance, but it's simply asking the reader to consider and to reconsider some of the things that they may not have paid attention to. Well, that feels like a pretty good wrapping up point. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell the listeners out there, Mike? Yeah, I I think that uh, any type of creative practice is really helpful to people in this in this time. It's really easy to become a consumer, to just be watching things or reading things. But to be a maker right now uh, has been really helpful for me. So find something to do or to make, whether that's a garden or uh, starting some kind of creative project, try writing something. Record what it's like for you to be witnessing these, these moments. Even a short daily journal could be really valuable for you to look back on years from now. Start a podcast. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, start a podcast. It's great to reconnect with you guys on this medium and uh, yeah i really appreciate the invitation here um, yeah i hope that even though it does feel like a lot of our world and our lives is very dystopian uh, there are acts you can do to feel better about it to feel like you're part of the resistance i know both of you are always 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 on the front line so i've taken a lot of inspiration from you both Right and that's from you, buddy. Mike. Yeah. yeah. Well, we end our shows with a tuned in section where we get to chat about what we're listening to or reading or consuming. That we're consuming. <laughs> yes. And I, I sort of already revealed that with myself 
those National Geographic episodes, which are, of course, problematic in the ways that they celebrate empire and um, anthropologists going in and just taking artifacts. Um, so uh, absolutely problematic, but interesting too. history. I think I'm fascinated by history and, you know, the history that we get from those shows is incomplete, but it's something and I've, I've been enjoying watching that. And a little fact is that King Tut, um, the famous uh, Pharaoh was like, uh, after his death, his, the person who took over after him, the next Pharaoh put him in a very small, like temple and wanted him to be forgotten. But because of being put in that small temple, the grave robbers never found it. And then later, you know, the archaeologists found it in the 20th century. And that famous, like, death mask of King Tut, the gold one, is like, you know, what a lot of people think of when they think of Egypt. And so King Tut's the most famous pharaoh. So that's just an interesting sort of, this person wanted to bury him and, you know, 3,000 years later, King Tut became very, very famous. So there's a little bit of hope in that story, too. Yeah, Mike, what are you tuned in to? Or do you want me to go next? I can go next. I, I've i been reading a bit. Um, I recently finished uh, There, There by Tommy Orange. Absolutely fantastic novel. Um, I reread The Myth of Sisyphus by Albert Camus. Uh, I feel like he's really a thinker that has the the spirit of the the moment at heart. Um, you know, he wrote The Rebel, The Plague, The Stranger, writes kind of extensively about how to exist in an absurd condition. Um, but I've also been watching this series that I think was produced by the History Channel. I think I, I watched it on uh, streaming but it's called Alone. Have you guys heard of this? Oh, oh yeah. We, we've we been talking about it on the show for weeks, Mike. Okay, Get okay, okay. Program, but yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so I'm late to the party, but I watched uh, season one and most of season two. And yeah, I think Alone is great because it, uh, I mean, for whatever is problematic about, I don't know, just reality TV in general, uh, this one sort of, fits in with like a, a more holistic view of what masculinity is and um, you know to see these macho guys go really struggle to adapt to life in the wilderness they break down they're crying and you know they get humbled yeah um, so yeah I've kind of enjoyed that I mean there is something nice about fake drama when it's just like so produced where you're just like are you kidding me flavor flave but like Really, it's just like trash, but this alone is like real drama because it feels very like at the edge of life and death, you know? Yeah, yeah. There's there's something satisfying about it, especially since we've all spent a considerable amount of time out in the backcountry. How about you, Davey? What are you tuned into? Um, you know, not a whole lot, but one thing that really got me pumped this last week was listening to some... Uh, playlist that you made for me, Bob. I was out digging, digging up my backyard, and I put on. I think it's a late '90s playlist, 
that is just rocking. And I just got out there and uh, just like nice. put on my my speaker and I was just like digging and it was just like hit after hit. I mean, there was there it's all like really bad music, but like God, it feels so good listening to like some 41 and garbage and bush and uh I can't even remember what else. Will Smith, he was on there. <laughs> It's a killer mix. If if people out there want want it, just let me know. Yeah. Oh, well, that's going to flood the inboxes pretty quick there, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Can't just give away the goods that easy, you know? <laughs> just kidding. No. Yeah, it's a great mix. Anyways, thanks for that. And it's always good to get that nostalgia up. Uh, all right. So, Mr. Michael Bishop, how can people get in contact with you if they want to uh, tell you that they loved your story um yeah sure go ahead and uh you can just send me an email my email address is michaelbishop1981 at gmail.com um and they can visit thenormalschool.com to read primum non nocere first do no harm and uh yeah i thank them for publishing this piece and look forward to any discussion or interaction with folks i'm also you know facebook uh mike bishop so yeah if you want to start a conversation about creative nonfiction or writing or dystopia um i'm all about it sweet yeah and as always you can find us on the show on instagram thriving in dystopia i just checked this morning we got 59 followers that's feeling pretty good there bob way to go and yeah, email Dave Peachtree at Gmail after this episode. Oh yeah, it's already going way up. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm just watching it. I, we, I mean, this isn't even published, but it's just look, dang, <laughs> through the roof. Um, yeah, and bmaze19 at Twitter. You can always get us there. Well, Mike, thanks for being who you are, and for all the laughs and. Uh, yeah, all the thinking we've done over the years together. Yeah, Dave, I wouldn't have it any other way. Keep this up, Mike. It's really inspiring, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for getting married, Dave. I wouldn't have this episode <laughs> without you. Sweet. Well, love you both, and let's cue that end music and talk soon, okay? Aloha. Take care, guys. Hey, what's up, y'all? Bob and I just want to take that second and thank you all for those years that you keep on lending us. It seriously means the world to us, and we couldn't, and we wouldn't be doing this without you. So thanks so much. We also want to thank the artists for making our podcast a little bit more beautiful. The intro song is In Heaven by Drake Stafford, and our new outro song is called The Time for Action by Kennedy. And as always, the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine did our thumbnail art. Well, we'll see you next Tuesday, and I hope you have a wonderful week. Action, 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 action. Also, huge props to Kai Angle, the master of suspense music, for giving Mike's story that little extra edge to put us on the edge of our seats. Tantos de mi clase que no tienen dónde ir, 
sin nadie que los ampare ni razón para existir Odiándose entre ellos al no poder recurrir a un sistema que los mata y solamente quiere huir Se niega a abrir los ojos a ver tantas injusticias La calle es color rojo y nunca salen las noticias Manipulan a su antojo, nos dejan en la inmundicia Pero ahora su despojo va a ser la única primicia